Well, greetings, everybody. Wonderful singing, great words, sweet time of worship. Uh, we are continuing uh, tonight with our fairly lengthy series of Foundations of the Faith. What is it that we believe or ought to believe? And specifically, we introduced a few weeks ago uh, the topic of, of the future. Uh, what are our foundational beliefs with reference to the future? And that is uh, what we will continue to talk about uh, tonight. You recall, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we introduced the topic uh, by reviewing Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel as recorded in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And I mentioned to you that I found in those verses a kind of an outline of prophetic events, which I wanted to use to hopefully serve us well uh, for the months to come. If you missed those two uh, messages from Daniel 9, um, I wish you would take some time to uh, listen to them uh, because you'll, you'll be caught up with what we're doing tonight and in the weeks to come if you do. And if you would like at any time to access those things, all you have to do is go to our website, www.sagemontchurch.org. And then you can find your way to the recorded messages of uh, folks who preach and teach here. And uh, so if you miss something and are interested, uh, you don't have to be left out. Now, if you go to the website and don't know what to do from there to access these things, I'm going to volunteer uh, my faithful secretary, Kaki. Just call the church, ask for Kaki. As she says, like the pants, and she will help you to navigate your way if this website stuff is new to you. Uh, we're spending a lot of time putting more and more on it that'll be helpful to you. Or if you would like, you could go to our bookstore and you could purchase there uh, the recorded tapes, again, of those who preach and teach here in the church. A lot of good resources for you. So we spoke about Gabriel's prophecy, he's an angel, you know, to Daniel, and we introduced the idea of the 70 weeks, and I won't belabor the point anymore tonight, but I think those 70 weeks are the outline uh, that will help us to understand uh, what God's future plan is. Now, when I did so, I mentioned to you that biblical prophecy, to me, is like looking at a beautiful panoramic view of a marvelous mountain range. So these are not here just for nothing, you know. And when you look at a mountain range, especially from afar, you could identify specific peaks uh, though perhaps it's a little hard to gauge the distances between the peaks. And that's how I want us to approach prophecy. We don't have to agree on all the details and timing and specifics. I think it is important, however, for us to identify the major peaks in God's prophetic mountain range. And so we will do that with the first one of these peaks tonight... So I'm going to go over here, a little bit of mountain climbing, and I will, in theory, make this stick 
Don't go away. I'll be right with you. This is supposed to work. And boy, is it not. Let's see. How are we doing? Anyone have any chewing gum? Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's where I meant to put it. Yeah. There you go. As if I'm not humbled enough at home, I have to come here and be humiliated as well. Okay. So, uh, the rapture is what we're going to speak about tonight. Why? Because I think from this point on, from our perspective, this, the rapture, is the next mountain peak in God's prophetic range of future things. So we will spend this evening, and Lord willing, next evening, next Wednesday, developing specifically uh, this theme of the rapture. Well, the scripture will do it for us. In fact, uh, the rapture is mentioned in many places in the Bible. The one I want for us to look at in particular is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. We'll only look at part of that tonight. Here's what it says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Paul wrote that, and he wrote it to a group of Christians like you and I, but they lived in a different place, Thessalonica, modern-day Greece. And what's interesting about the Christians there in Thessalonica is that they were all new Christians, uh, they were introduced to the Lord not more than just a few months before Paul wrote to them what he's writing here. And even though they be new Christians, Paul says to them, we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. And the question we could ask is uninformed about what? Well, I'm telling you, it's about prophecy. Paul wrote to relatively new believers that he didn't want them to be uninformed about the future, specifically about what is the future for believers who have died? What is on the horizon with regard to the return of the Lord? What can we know about future things? Now, sometimes we think prophecy is a subject very esoteric and which only some in the church are interested in. And the rest of us kind of hold it at arm's length. You know, and you know how we do it rather smugly. We say it doesn't matter. It'll all work out according to God's plan anyway. And that's the way we excuse ourselves from being informed about prophecy. But I got very convicted about this. I think you can overemphasize prophetic things, but maybe more often than that, we underemphasize prophetic things. I think you'll see, as in the course of our study, it is essential that we be informed correctly about God's plan for the future because it impacts quite directly on our lives in the here and now. So Paul thought, though, 
these be relatively new babes, that this kind of advanced training in prophetic things was very, very important. So no fluff with Paul. You get that? No fluff with Paul. He's moving into biblical prophecy, even amongst new believers, right away. So Paul wanted the Thessalonians, and surely us as well, not to be uninformed specifically about those who are asleep. Do you know who that's talking about? A couple of you in the back row. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just relax. It's actually talking about Christians who have died. It's a reference to Christians who have died. I know this is the case. Uh, Test me out on this. No place in the New Testament uses this marvelous descriptive term with regard to the death of any unsaved person. An unbeliever who dies is never said in the New Testament, never said in the New Testament to have merely fallen asleep. That is a descriptive term specifically reserved for believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who die. And Paul wanted his readers not to be uninformed about these Christians who have passed on before us. So why does it say that deceased Christians have fallen asleep? I'll tell you why. Uh, To remind us that their state of affairs is just about as temporary as sleep. Death has a rather permanent quality to it, Uh, But their situation is temporary. So this marvelous metaphor of sleep is applied to the death of one who dies in Christ. And so for the Christian, death has become sleep by the death of Christ. Don't underestimate what he's done for us. Oh, death, where is your sting, but thanks be to God who has removed it. And so for us, we sleep when we pass on. His dying and rising from death has transformed for us death into simply repose of a temporary kind. And so for the Christian, death is as harmless as sleep. You don't fear it, do you? Come talk if you do. Don't be ashamed. Let's talk if you do. Many people fear death. Let's talk. Let's see if we can get to the bottom of your fears. Privately. Give me a buzz. Let's talk. For the Christian, oh no. Death is about as harmless as sleep. In fact, the word used here, asleep, is the same word from which the word cemetery comes. You know why? The early Christians referred to a cemetery as a sleeping place. A place of sleep, that's all. It's not the permanent dwelling place of a Christian. And not only that, the part of the Christian that sleeps, did you know this, is only the Christian's body, not the Christian's soul, not the Christian's spirit, 
They always remain alive and well and conscious. All that happens upon the death of a Christian is that the body sleeps for a spell. I emphasize this point because there are certain groups that would have us believe in something called soul sleeping. Those are groups who are misinformed about future things. There is no such thing as soul sleeping. For the Christian, the only dimension, the only part of our rather complex being that sleeps is the body. So when a Christian dies, his soul, his spirit, goes immediately to be with the Lord. I know this by examining the scriptures. You can do the same. When Stephen was dying, he saw it coming. Stephen, the martyr, he was about to die. Do you remember what he said to the Lord Jesus? He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We have a word for it in Hebrew, the neshama. The neshama never dies. The spirit, the soul goes upon death immediately to be with the Lord. Stephen, the Christian, knew he was about to immediately and directly upon his death enter the presence of the Lord. All that was left behind was Stephen's martyred and abused, murdered body but his soul and spirit went immediately to be with the Lord. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. There is no purgatory. I don't mean to offend, but I don't care if I do because it is a heresy. There is no intermediate state. It's not like that is personally distasteful to me. That would be okay. It's just that it's biblical, unbiblical. It doesn't matter whether it's distasteful or palatable. If it isn't biblical, throw it away. Please don't talk to me about your tradition. Mine is much older than yours. <laughs> let's, let's not pull rank when it comes to tradition. Come on, what does the Bible say? Not what your religious traditions or mine says. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says just what it says there. You've got two options if you're a Christian. To be absent with the body. Your body is laid to rest. Your soul and spirit to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. You're not floating around in Limbosville waiting for somebody to get baptized to get you out of it or to pray you out of it. Good night. You're not in it. You're in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the soul and the spirit of a Christian who has passed are very much alive and conscious. It is only the body that sleeps. So why does Paul so much want the Thessalonians, and by extension, even us, to be properly informed about all this? Well, he says so. So that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. I love the sound of babies only not here in particular. I just, I just, it's okay. So, uh, you 
know some believers think uh, grieving is an indication of lack of faith. Grieving is an indication of being a human. <laughs> grieving is common to man, saved and unsaved man. Jesus wept. And in so doing, gives us permission to do likewise. Grief is the normal expression upon the loss of a loved one. I get nervous about the Christian who is not grieving properly. They're stuffing it all. It's going to come out, but not appropriately. So Paul is not trying to stifle one's grief. He's simply trying to distinguish the grief of a Christian from the grieving of someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. And so he simply says here, grieve on, but not as the rest. Well, who are the rest? They're unsaved people. He's having a conversation in-house He's talking about in-house matters. He's talking to Thessalonian Christians, and he's distinguishing their grieving from the grieving of the rest, those outside of the fold, not redeemed, not belonging to Christ. And Paul says, grieve, but not like the rest. Well, how do the rest grieve? Well, it says right there, as people who have no hope, we don't grieve that way. We have hope. Hope of what? Hope of reunion. Hope of life after death. I love this little poem written by a wonderful saint of old, J. Sidlow Baxter. No longer, he said, must the mourners weep and call departed Christians dead, for death is hallowed into sleep and every grave becomes a bed. The Christian merely sleeps. The soul and the spirit live on. For the Christian, death, you see, is about moving. It's not about dying. Not at all. Others don't have this hope. Uh, there was someone named Theocritus. He was a, a Greek poet of old who wrote, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. Not true if you die in Christ. Here is an inscription written on a pagan tomb at this very place in Paul's day, Thessalonica. After death, there is no revival. After the grave, no meeting of those who have loved each other on earth. Baloney. This is not true. For Christians who have fallen asleep, we have hope of an ultimate reunion. Listen to Paul's words in the very next verse, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This that we just read about here in verse 14, this will happen at the event known as the rapture. That's when this will happen. Christ will come 
down for us who remain, but he won't be alone. According to this verse, he will come with those, here's the wonderful descriptive term again, who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That sounds good, doesn't it? But isn't it just wishful thinking? Can you be sure of this? It's not wishful thinking at all. You can be very sure of it. Look, how can you be so sure of the rapture? I'll tell you how. Are you certain of the fact that Jesus died and rose again? Tell me, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Those are two of the most factually uh, evidence-based events in all time. And don't you see what Paul is doing? If you have certainty of the factual evidentiary nature of the death of Christ and of the resurrection of Christ, so too you can be just as certain that he's going to come again at the rapture. And with him will be these Christians who have passed, fallen asleep, before you. The assurance of the rapture is based on the factual nature of the previous death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, his resurrection enables the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. You can be sure of it. When a believer dies, make no mistake, his body sleeps but the soul never does. The soul and the spirit go immediately to be with the Lord. So we read, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, folks, how could he do that? He cannot bring them with him unless they are already with him. You get it? He can't bring them back if they're there, not there to begin with. You know, when we think of the rapture, we're thinking about us going up No, 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 that's another dimension of the rapture. We'll get to it. But don't miss this one. It's about the Lord coming down with those Christians who have already... Do you know somebody who has fallen asleep in Christ whom you love and miss? I'm not stretching it to tell you be hopeful. Don't wish them back. There he, she is with the Lord. And that person will come back to get you. But but, but, but boy, it'll be glorious. And before you go up, that loved one will be coming down with, you say, coming down for what? Remember I said the body sleeps, but the soul is alive. The soul and the spirit of these deceased Christians will come down and be joined to their resurrected physical body. Did you know there's a lot of resurrections in the Bible? This is one. This is resurrection, not unto judgment. This is, that'll come later. This is resurrection unto life. Now, a lot of people ask questions. They say, this is bogus. Come on. A lot of Christians have been burned at the stake. How is God going to reunite their souls, uh, you know, to their burned up bodies? Look. Give me a break. (laughs) Mountain peaks in God's prophetic mountain range. Don't miss the mountain for the trees. The rapture is is an event that's happening. How God works out all the details, I have no idea. But I don't think it's a big problem for him. 
by the way, it's not the same body. It's a glorified body because the body that the deceased Christian has occupied is diseased and now decaying. That's why the Christian fell asleep. The body ceased to work. That's the way it is. It's going to happen to you and I. Some of us a little closer than others, it seems to me, as I look out there right now. But anyway, but, 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 so the body will be a glorified, not just the vehicle that carries us around here so wonderfully on earth. No, 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 no. One fit for eternity. So, so, so the first thing that happens at the rapture is, is not so much our translation. Oh, no. It's the Lord Jesus coming with those Christians who have already departed so that they can be reunited with a resurrected, glorified, fit-for-heaven body. Don't you see? That's why we do grieve the temporary separation from loved ones, but we don't grieve as the rest who have no hope. Are you kidding? You want the best for that loved one who died in Christ before you. Hey, you got the best. That person's coming with the Lord Jesus Christ to be reunited, resurrected with a uh, disease-free, fit-for-eternity new body. So the souls of Departed believers come with the Lord Jesus at the rapture uh, to be joined to their resurrected bodies. And, of course, you could ask, how could Paul know this? How could anybody know this? Well, here's the answer. Uh, verse 15 of First Thessalonians 4. For this we say to you, look, by the word of the Lord. You can't know these things through human speculation. You can only know them through divine revelation. And that's what Paul received. For this we say to you by personal opinion. For this we say to you by educated guesswork. For this we say to you by studying death and dying. No, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You can't get it by human reasoning. Why? No human has ever been on that side of things, don't you see? You have to get truth about uh, what happens over there from a timeless being. And the only timeless being is God himself. And so God revealed these things to Paul, who under inspiration is revealing them to us. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So at the rapture, two things are going to happen, folks. One is the resurrection of Christians who have died. And then the second is, I think we could call it this, the translation of Christians who are alive, translated from these earthly bodies to our glorified bodies to meet the Lord in the air. That will be, uh, Lord willing, our topic next week, the translation of those believers who are alive at the time of the rapture. Uh, right now, please understand, those Christians who have passed on before the rapture will be resurrected and joined in their new and glorified bodies to their everlasting souls and spirits. Now, before we close, can I just ask your attention just for another moment or two? I think, actually, it's a deeper conviction than just that. That Paul believed with certainty that he and the Thessalonian Christians to whom he is writing 
I think they firmly believed that they might very well be alive when the Lord returned at the time of the rapture. How else do you explain? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we, not you, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. In other words, uh, I believe Paul believed and that the Bible teaches that the rapture was imminent. That's a big word. If you go to seminary, you get it. But I'll save you the trip. It simply means whatever is imminent could happen at any time. Just don't make it more complicated than that. That's what imminence means. It means that those things may happen before the rapture. No other prophetic mountain peak must happen before the rapture. Everything's taken care of, folks. So I'm not a date setter. Maybe you are. I do not know when the rapture is going to happen. I think I do know the order of events in which it happens. And next week, if you come, I'll tell you when it's going to happen, uh, according to the scriptures. But in terms of a specific date, I don't know. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, it was 2,000 years ago. That's like a long time, except not with the Lord as he reckons things. All I know is there is nothing in the Bible with regard to a significant prophetic mountain peak that has to happen on this side of things before this, the rapture, takes place. In other words, it could happen before April 15th, the last day to file your tax return. <laughs> Good news, it could happen before the presidential election. Amen. Yeah, good. Hey, that's the first amen I've heard here in a long time. <clears throat> Nobody is saying it will happen then. All we're saying is it can because it's imminent. Nothing has to be fulfilled. Nothing more. We developed uh, over length the fact that Israel is back in the land. That's a huge thing. That had to take place before the rapture. It took place in 1948. There is no other key prophetic mountain peak that has to precede this event called the rapture, which means this. The moment of Christ's coming for us who are alive in Christ is nearer than when we first believed. It means every single passing moment brings Christ's return even closer. Don't despair. Be filled with hope. As factual is the death, burial, and resurrection of the first fruits from the dead, the Lord Jesus. That's just how certain it is that he's coming again with Christians who have preceded you and I in dying for us. And it could happen at any time. 
which leads to this rather haunting question. How then should we live? How should we live? I'm struggling with that. I hope you do. How should we spend our time? How should we use our gifts? On what should we expend our material wealth? What, what should we watch? What should we not look at? Shouldn't we grant forgiveness to fellow Christians with whom we are at odds? When I was in the military, we had something called the IG inspection, Inspector General. In fact, my father-in-law uh, was on an IG Inspector General team. Some of their visits were announced, and uh, long before they actually came, uh, the battalion, the unit, whatever the military unit was, I mean got as much in order as they possibly could. Cleaning, organizing, accounting for all things in advance of the visit from the inspector general's team. But some IG inspections in the military were not announced. Why'd they do that? To keep us always expectant of it. To keep us alert and watching. I surely don't know the date and time of the rapture. I think the Bible tells us the order of events in which it will occur. So the Lord has clearly announced that Jesus is coming again for us. But he doesn't tell us more than that it could be just as a thief who visits you. <laughs> he doesn't leave a note. The thief doesn't say, would two weeks from tonight be okay for me to burglarize your house? Why does God do that? Why doesn't he just tell us? Oh, no, because he wants us to have an incentive to live like it could be at an, a moment's notice. He wants us to be alert. You know what he doesn't want us to be? Ashamed at his coming. I have to ask myself, I'm not preaching to anyone. We're all in this together. What do I want to be doing when he returns? Do I want to be watching that on my computer? Do I want to be drinking such and such? Do I want to be with this person who I shouldn't be with? You know what I'm talking about. Do I want to be selfishly ambitious? Do I want to smoke this or chew that? I mean, do I want to be at odds with family members and not work on reconciliation? Biological family, church family. Do I want to invest in stocks and bonds? Alone, as an end in itself, instead of as a means to the end of contributing to kingdom causes? Do I want to stay away from other Christians who are going to be going up together and with whom I'll be dwelling eternally? 
Do I want to give up on the local church as some think they have the option of doing? Do I want to be sleeping in on Sunday when the Lord returns? Instead of affiliating with a local church family. It could be at a moment's notice. The scriptures say, therefore, wake up from your slumber. <laughs> the church of Jesus Christ is a marvelous sleeping giant. But just as the IG kept us on regular alert, how about the commander in chief? Why do you want him to find you doing when he comes? How about reading the Bible? How about praying? Can you imagine? Oh, Lord, I was just talking to you. How about serving? How about doing what John Mark invited us to think about doing? Going to a place to tell people about Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. My fellow Christians, we don't need any more Christians than those in this very room to have unbelievable impact on the world. But we got to wake up from our slumber. Me, you, all of us. Because the Lord could come at any time. How then should we live? What would be pleasing to him? Would you mind taking just a moment in silence to reflect on that question right where you are? You could bow your heads if you'd like so as not to be distracted by anything. I wonder if I could ask you to ask perhaps the soon coming Lord Jesus <laughs> if he would search you and see if there be any hurtful, harmful, unholy way in you, which would make you ashamed at his coming. I wonder if right where you sit, you could say, Lord Jesus, I repent. I turn from it and to you anew. Let me be ready for your coming. I wonder maybe if the Holy Spirit of God would maybe in the next moment or so put his loving finger on an area of your life you really would be better without. Take a moment. Say, search me, O oh God. I want to live in the light of your imminent return. Take a, a quiet moment. Now, could I ask you, uh, everybody, please to stand to your feet? And uh, I won't take more than just another moment or two. But in this very reflective, prayerful um, 
atmosphere. Uh, no fanfare, no music, no uh, coercion. I wonder if you'd be willing to make your way uh, to this place just to sort of drive a stake into grace. There's no magic. These are just steps. But it can be quite a holy uh, experience for you to come and nail down the stake. Lord Jesus, I know how I have to live differently in light of your imminent return. I know what baggage doesn't serve me well and is displeasing to you. I know what I have to turn from, and I'm aware I have to turn back to you. It's just us here. I wonder if you'd be willing to just step out from where you are. Just come and kneel here, and then our pastor is going to come, and I have a feeling he'll pray for you. Just come from wherever you are, even over there in the balcony. Uh, we will surely wait, and you just hold on to a railing or something. Just make your, your way. Do you realize before we get to the parking lot, the Lord Jesus could return? I just, how do you want him to find you? I'm not speaking down. I had to straighten out some affairs before I came tonight. I want him to find me free of sin and every encumbrance and evil thing. I want to be doing the stuff that will put a smile on his face so that I can hear from him when he comes. Well done. Good job. Good and faithful servant. I know you do. That's your heart's desire if you're a Christian. So just make your way. Come over to the altar and make it a holy place of repentance and prayer. Brother John, could you come pray for us, please? Father, these are very special moments. There are times when we can't talk to anyone but you about the deep needs of our life. We thank you for who you are. We praise you for who you are and are so grateful for your written word that we can count on. Father, we make ourselves available to you. If we live, we want to live unto you. If we die, we die unto you. And if you choose this night to be the night, our prayer would be even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May our hearts be open, our minds attentive, our bodies ready, our spirit in oneness with your spirit, that we're your children. I pray, Lord, for that sister or that brother that walked in here tonight carrying a very heavy burden.
no understanding as to why or even what and wondering how can I go another day another week and I, I pray Lord that you would just let the words that we have heard tonight through the interpretation of your spirit speak individually to every one of us that we might make ourselves available to you with no reservation speak Lord thy servant heareth Lord send me here I am totally available as for me and my house we want to serve you bless our family that we call the church bless our individual family where mother may be here dad grandfather grandmother brother sister child bless those who are struggling with health problems to rely upon you as the great physician tonight to touch and to heal and father for sin that runs so rampant at, at each one of us on a continual basis we just again tonight plead your blood over all of it we believe your grace is sufficient and that your blood cleanses from all sin and if you say we're clean, we're clean indeed. And so I pray, Father, that we'll go our way tonight rejoicing, praising you, and telling others, keep looking, keep watching. It may be today. Bless every person here, every home represented, every prayer that is being lifted. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to be seated for just...